Let's grab our Bibles. We're turning to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We set the scene a little last week. And now we're going to go back to the beginning, but before we do anything else, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is alive, that it is active, that as it is proclaimed and sent forth, it will always accomplish that which you send it forth to accomplish for the glory of your name. So we just pray for the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Enlighten our hearts and our minds. Give us listening ears to hear what you're saying to each and every one of us, to us as your people. We invite you, King of glory, to have your glory as we turn our hearts and our minds and the eyes of our heart towards you in this way. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Book of Romans chapter 1 is where we are headed. We did our best last week to kind of set the scene a little for a journey through the book of Romans. Wonderful book, this incredible piece of theology, but it's so much more than just information. And as we discovered last week, for those who were here, I'm sure you were all paying very close attention, the title and the theme and the way we set this up was this, all roads lead to, who said Rome, not Rome, all roads lead to wonder, and that really is Paul's heart and intention as he writes this book, is not just for good theology, as wonderful and as important as that is, but that his readers and that us as we approach this incredible letter that Paul writes, that we would have an encounter with the person and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and all that he came to accomplish. So all roads lead to wonder, but the question for us this morning is where do they begin? Where is it that this incredible enthusiasm, that this proclamation of praise that Paul leads us towards, where does it stem from? What is the source? And I want to speak to us this morning on this theme with this title, The Message That Matters. The message that matters. Are we ready? Five of us are ready. Let's go. That'll do. It's a quorum. Romans 1. It says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. It's a very long sentence. It's even longer in the Greek. Take a breath. Let's continue. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. What a proclamation that is. Do you know you are loved by God and called to be saints? There's a sermon there, but we'll move on. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the word. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayer, asking that somehow by God's will... I may now at last succeed in coming to you. 
For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest amongst you as well as amongst the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. And verse 15 The next couple of verses is where we're landing this morning. It says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am eager, he says, to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's a wonderful passage, but let's go back to the beginning and just try and set a bit of a scene and then focus on the intent and the heart of what it is that Paul is saying as he begins this letter. First of all, who was Paul? Many of us would be well aware of who this man was, and in fact there's been a resurgence in the last probably 20 or 30 years in Pauline studies, really examining who he was, his background, and how that impacted and affected his theology. But very briefly, Paul was born a Roman citizen to Jewish parents in Tarsus, a place in modern eastern Turkey. As he grows up, we know that he went into Jerusalem to study Torah or the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses. He studied with the bee's knees of the Jewish scholars of the time. And in fact, he was proficient in his study and by his own admission, he exceeded beyond anyone of his age and his generation. He becomes a Pharisee, which is one of the the ruling sects of the Jewish religion at the time. And so we see this background of Paul as this highly educated, highly competent, and highly zealous individual. He was a learned man, and he was a passionate man. And so as his story unfolds, and we see this, it's probably around 30 years of age when Paul, who was of course, Saul originally begins to persecute the followers of Jesus. There's this little sect that has grown and it's, it's gained some uh, notoriety and some expansion, particularly in Jerusalem and Judea. So Paul begins to persecute those people who are following Jesus. And of course, we read round about at this stage, 33 to 36 AD, Paul's somewhere in his 30s, that 33 to 35 years of age, and he has this incredible encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. He meets the Lord, he's on the road to Damascus, he's riding along there with this intent in his heart to persecute believers, and not just persecute, to uh, take their lives, persecute them unto death. And he encounters the Lord. Now, he has this incredible moment that marks him so much that as you read through the book of Acts, he continually mentions it repeatedly as he shares his testimony in different settings and different scenarios, it never seems to lose its power or its prominence in his understanding. This incredible 
grace of God that clearly marked his life. That Jesus himself would come and appear to him. And so he begins his letter, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. He makes it clear it's not something that he has earned, wasn't even something that he was particularly striving towards. In fact, he was the persecutor of Christians. And yet God, in his mercy, he called him. And I love that picture. We're going to see that as we go through this particular book, that he has this sense of the calling of God. And yet as he writes to the Romans, what does he say? Not just many. It's not just an apostle thing. You too are loved and called. And I hope we're going to see that as we go through this journey. So he encounters the Lord and the sovereignty of the Lord's grace. He has this radical moment where his life is turned around and completely changes direction. And from there he spends three years in Arabia. Eventually Barnabas is probably some a decade or so later, grabs him and brings him to Antioch. And we looked at this when we studied through the book of Acts. There's a little revival going on there, particularly within the Gentile or the non-Jewish believers. And Paul's brought into that setting. He began, began, begins to teach and to preach. And it's out of that place, out of that community of Antioch, that the Holy Spirit again commissions. He says, set aside Paul and Barnabas, if you remember this story and this encounter. Paul's very happy. He's been brought into this incredible church. Things are happening. But the Spirit says, no, you've got to go. And so Paul and Barnabas are commissioned to go and to preach and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And so that begins these three missionary journeys. And then eventually Paul will end up in Rome himself. And he heads off about 47, 48 AD on his first missionary journey sees some incredible things, he comes back, it's not all smooth sailing, there's persecution, there's difficulty and struggle in there, heads off on his second, and then finally on the third missionary journey. Now I give that context because it's towards the end of that third missionary journey, around 57 to 59 AD, that this particular letter is written. So he's seen some things, he's had his life turned around, he's had this journey of the Lord dealing with things, In his own life, he's brought in by Barnabas to Antioch. He's commissioned and sent out both by the Holy Spirit and that church. And then he's preached and proclaimed the gospel over at that particular time, so much of the known world. He's been a part of some incredible things, but he hasn't yet, at this point, been to Rome. So he writes this particular Letter, And this is what I think is so key in the midst of what we're going to read and as we continue through this journey in coming weeks. We're some three decades since the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. We've seen Paul embark upon this journey. He's seen some things. He's seen some incredible revivals. He's seen the gospel spread. He's seen these miraculous moments where it says... Even his handkerchief's been taken and demons are leaving and people are delivered and set free. But he's also endured some persecution and he's had some hardships. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stuck in a prison cell. He's been stoned and left for dead. This guy has endured some stuff. He's been on a journey. And that gives even more weight to what he's about to write here. What is it that in the midst of all of the things 
that Paul has seen that stands central? What is it that's still burning in his heart 20, 30 years down the track? What, what, what is it for him that's still driving him onward? And I would say that there is this multiplicity of factors that contribute to Paul's desire to write this letter. But more than anything else, as he writes up front, he says this. He says, I am eager. This is my desire as I'm coming. This is the point for me to come. Yes, there's, there's many other things. There's fellowship. He talks about that. I'm looking forward to seeing you. I'm sure he's looking forward to encourage them in many different ways. But he says, I am eager. This is my intent as I come. This is the heart and the passion that's driving me. I am coming to preach the gospel. To proclaim the gospel. For us to encourage one another in this one area. The glory, the beauty, the riches, the power, and the promise of the gospel. And this is what I want us to grab as we think about what it is that Paul's unfolding and unpacking in this particular book as we continue on this journey. See, he could have come with any kind of message burning in his heart, couldn't he? He could have come and there's, there's various issues around the Roman church at that time. There's uh, some division. If you look at the history of the Roman church, it had, it had spread to a certain degree, but there was a lot of persecution. One of the, uh, the Roman emperors had actually expelled all the Jewish people for about a five-year period, and then they'd come back, and the Gentiles had been running at the church. But there, was, there was divisions within, there was divisions without. There would have been a long list of issues that he could have preached about as he came to see the Roman church. But he says, this, this is my heart and intent as I come. It's not to talk about all the issues, although he talks about some as he goes along. This is the thing that will unify the church. This is what will bring us together. It's the power of the gospel. I'm coming to preach the gospel. See, he could have talked, couldn't he, about some of his great revival crusades. And hopefully he did. We don't read about them in the book of Romans. But he could have talked about signs, wonders and miracles and, and these incredible things that he'd seen in the Lord. And that would have been great. I'm not saying that's bad at all. And yet, as he comes, he comes with this single burning focus. He says, I'm coming to preach, to proclaim, to celebrate, to make known, to unpack one simple thing above all others. The glory of of the gospel. He's a brilliant man. He could have talked as some others did. He said, you know, so many people are talking about endless genealogies. They're talking about this theological nuance. And it, it, there's nothing wrong with debating some of these things at times. But Paul is making it very clear to a people that he's never met in person before. He says, I'm coming and I'm coming with this message that's burning on my heart. It is... The power of the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, this whole book is going to unpack Paul's version of the gospel. But he gives us a good summary up front. He talks about Jesus Christ, this prophesied Messiah, the one who came to save, declared to be the Son of God through resurrection, that's verse 4, that all nations would there, therefore believe and put their faith in his name. 
In fact, elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us an even more succinct version of the gospel. He says this, 1 Corinthians 15, talking to the Corinthian believers, he said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, for this is what I'm delivering you as of first importance, that which I received. He's making it clear this is not his message, it's not his interpretation, saying this is the gospel. This, this is the way I've received it. This is the way that it should and must be proclaimed. Very simply, he says that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to, to Peter and the 12, 500 others and so on and so forth. That is the heart of the Gospel, that Jesus, the promised Messiah, he came. Not as an afterthought, as God's eternal plan unveiled and revealed, and that he died in our place for our sins, that he was raised from the grave, declaring who he was, that repentance in his name and faith in his name would be preached and proclaimed to the nations. Now we're going to, amen, thank you. We're going to unpack that more as we go along, but that is the succinct version of that is the gospel. That is the heart, not only of his message but of his motivation he said that's why i am coming to you that we can preach that we can proclaim that we can rejoice together in the glory of the gospel so that's what is the gospel then but then why the gospel why is it that for paul that was of such importance and we don't need to guess because he says that i'm eager to preach the gospel he says verse 16 for i'm not ashamed of the gospel why Why is it important? He said, for for it, for the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, Paul is saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel. That's my motivation and that's my desire and delight as I come for this reason. Because I've discovered, and he's, he's got some runs on the board. He's he's seen some things and he's saying, this is where the power is. All the other good stuff, I mean, that's fine. It's not necessarily bad. But it is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus. That that is the power of God unto salvation. That word power there is the word dynamos. It's the power of God. It's the message that holds the power, the greatest miracle of all. It's not the deliverance. That's wonderful. It's not the lame leaping. That's wonderful too. But it it is the miracle of a God who would save sinners, who would raise us up from death to life. That is the ultimate miracle and the ultimate power of God is the salvation that he offers And I would say that, see, we've talked a bit about the history of Paul, and this isn't just some kind of a a theological principle. It's not just a a nice-sounding sentimental statement. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's it's the power of God. I mean, he's saying it, it is a power, and I've experienced that in my own life. It's the power of God that literally knocked me off a horse and opened my eyes up to the futility of the life that I was leading. It's it's the power of God that's rescued and redeemed a sinner like me. 
This is the power. It's the power of God that Paul has seen as he has proclaimed and preached this message. Lives change. Entire regions brought into revival. These incredible pictures through the book of Acts as the gospels proclaimed through Asia in the biblical sense. And all of a sudden, towns en masse are just bringing their, their idols and potions and everything that's not of the law. There's these mass burning ceremonies just to, to cleanse their lives of all ungodly unrighteousness. He's saying, this is the power of God. I've seen it at work not only in my life, but literally transforming regions for the glory of God. It's not a theological principle it's this experiential reality. So what he's saying, I'm coming to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it because I've seen the power of God at work as this message is proclaimed. I don't know about you guys, but I've just had my heart stirred a little bit this week about some of the things happening in our own nation. And I've personally been really compelled just to pray and, and to pray in this particular vein, because I know, and it, again, it's not a bad thing that the government's trying to put certain strategies on and we can uh, ban alcohol and we can do these kind of things. But, you know, ultimately, the one thing that can change a nation, the one thing that can bring reconciliation, not just between Jews and Gentiles, but between people in a country, people from various backgrounds, it's the power of the gospel. And, and I don't know why, but my heart has just been stirred to really pray that we would see that again in our nation. Because it is needed, not just the strategies of man and government, but the power of God in the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. And he is a big God. He can do it. I've had a couple of people actually already this year pass me on a little book. I would recommend it. It's called Great Southland Revival. Um, I've had a few people give me copies, so I don't need any more. In fact, I've got a few, a, a few spare copies, but I have read it. It's by um, a guy, Warwick Marsh, who I do know. I've been involved with him in a few prayer movements, and another guy, Kurt Malberg. And they detail the workings of the Lord in the history of our nation. Acknowledging that there's never been a major or mighty revival in our country um, as there has in, say, the Welsh revival. There's plenty of other examples in history where literally God has moved in such a way that it's changed the course and direction of a nation. But there's many examples of some incredible things that the Lord has done. And one of the stories in there is about the, the Billy Graham revivals or outreach moments. I don't know whether anyone's been around long enough to remember some of those, certainly before my time. But it accounts these moments in 1959 in particular on Billy Graham's first crusade where he came to Australia and New Zealand. And the story is told that over 15 weeks, 3.25 million people attended. Remember, this is back in the 1950s. So Sydney, for example, they had over 150,000. So did the MCG, which is still the largest, most... Um, the, the largest crowd in Melbourne's history, and it's still the most successful evangelistic crusade in Australia's history. And in the midst of that, they, they've documented and recorded 
hundreds of thousands of people in that three-month period that gave their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, that heard the gospel and responded. In fact, one particular person who was there, they said it was the, the closest Australia has ever come to a great awakening. Now, for those who know Billy Graham, you'll know that he had an incredible career like uh, Paul the Apostle. He had this passion to just preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus. And in his ministry, which lasted over six decades, there was over 200 million in total worldwide that came to his crusades. There was over, they've estimated, 2.2 billion people that heard him preach over media over that time. He was the personal advisor to 11 presidents. He thinks it might have been good if they'd listened to his advice a little more over the years. But nevertheless, there's certainly presidents who sought him out. And it, it, the thing that I love most about him is that he was asked towards the end of his life and he passed away in 2018. They said, what is the secret to your success? How is it that you've had the most successful crusades, not only in Australian history, but arguably certainly in modern history around the world? This was his response. Grab this, I love it. He says, I have one message, that Jesus Christ came, he died on the cross, he rose again, he asked us to repent of our sins and receive him by faith as the Lord and Savior, and if we do, we have forgiveness of all our sins. And he went on and he made this comment. He said, as I look back over my life, I'm convinced there's only one thing that has the power to change people's lives. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he didn't just preach it. He lived that reality. And in an era where we're forever looking for the latest and greatest, we need to reinvent, repackage, remove altogether. I want to encourage us this morning that there is a message that matters. There is a message that stands the test of time as a witness to humanity. The power lies not in our ability to be culturally relevant, to find entertaining delivery methods, there's nothing wrong with using modern media, etc. But the power lies in the proclamation of the gospel. The power to save sinners and to transform nations. So Paul says later in probably the last letter he ever pens to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, I urge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and the holy angels. And Timothy's probably thinking, goodness. He says, I urge you. This is, this is an urgent priority. Preach the gospel. In season, out of season, whatever's happening around you, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And so Paul is writing to the Romans. He says, I'm eager to come to preach the gospel to you, for I'm not ashamed. It is the gospel and the gospel alone that is the power of God for salvation to everybody who believes. And here's the encouragement for us. You see, most of us, probably certainly on some level, would say, well, we, we, we get the gospel. We at least understand the basics of the gospel. But what's stirring in my heart is not so much that we would get the gospel, 
but that the gospel would get a fresh hold of us. So you and I might never preach to 2.2 billion people. Maybe we will. I don't want to limit you. Who knows what the Lord might do. We may never have the ear of the elites, of presidents and prime ministers. But you and I, each and every one of us in this room, we can live anchored into the truth of the gospel. We can know what it is to be compelled by that same passion. We can have that same fire that's burning in our hearts for the only message that saves, the only message that gives true perspective and purpose to humanity. We can live our lives as Paul did with a priority and recognizing the power of the gospel. Not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. Can we get the worship team back out? I want to pray for us just in a couple of regards this morning and then we're going to finish with a song. But I want you just in the quietness of your own moment, if you could just turn your attention to the Lord. And look to me, let's not be thinking of the rest of the day and tomorrow. I know there's lots that, as always, can distract and weigh upon our minds. I want to give us just a moment with the Lord to respond. As we've heard this urgency in the heart of the Apostle Paul, I don't want to leave us with this thought and encouragement. You know, we have one life to live. I don't think that's a surprise to any of us here, but we need to recognize and remind ourselves at times. There's just a few short years on this planet. What is it that we're going to live for? What is it that drives us? What's our motivation? See, it's so easy at times, isn't it, to be caught up in many different things. The busyness of life, Pursuing career, pursuing an education, they're good things. Working for a paycheck, planning for the next holiday. And I think there's that tendency, isn't there? Always to make excuses. When we're young, to think, oh, well, I'm only young. And when, when I finish school, just, just when I get my education, when I... When I finish university, when I've got the, got the piece of paper, I've got the qualifications, then, then maybe I can do something for the Lord. I want to encourage you, if you're young and in this room, what an incredible mission field is all around you to live for the glory of God. What a needed place for the gospel to be proclaimed. Maybe you're in a different phase of life. Maybe you're in the, the busyness of family and young kids and the chaos and all parents would say amen we know what that's like I think well just just when I'm through this period then then maybe I can really answer the call that's on my heart I want to encourage you in that space in the midst of the busyness and the chaos what an opportunity there is to love your kids for the glory of God to minister to others who are in that same phase of life. Certainly my wife and I found with young kids, you meet more people, you have more conversations, just because there's that commonality of interest. Maybe you're at the other end of life. You're 
retired, you're planning the, the road trips around Australia, you're time to kick back, I've worked hard, nothing wrong with some caravanning and holidays, you hear what I'm saying? But what an opportunity in that moment of your life, you've perhaps got the time, the resources, not to retire, but to re-fire for kingdom and for godly purposes. And it's been my prayer, as I said, somehow in the midst of, of Paul's urgency, of Paul's proclamation, of Paul's encouragement, that each of us would examine in our own way what it looks like for his glorious gospel to grab a fresh hold on our hearts. So I want to do two things this morning. Firstly, just with every eye closed, and intentionally as we go through this series, as we proclaim this wonderful reality of a God who saves. I want to give anyone opportunity this morning, if you're here today, you've never made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never surrendered your life to Him. Never handed over the keys. You don't know what it's like to experience the radical power of a saving God at work. If you're here this morning and there's just that tug on your heart of the Holy Spirit and you're ready, thinking, I want, I want to make that step. I'm not going to embarrass you. I do want you just to raise your hand. The Lord sees that. Just as that acknowledgement, I just want to give a moment or so. If that's you this morning, just raise your hand. Online as well, if you're joining us this morning, you can respond in your own way. The Holy Spirit is just drawing and tugging upon your heart. There's no hands, that's fine. The second thing is this. This is a, there's an opportunity, an invitation this morning. I want us to ask the question, what, what does it look like for us to take the next step? So I said, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're the next Billy Graham, that there's 2.2 billion people, there's a ministry to build. But what does it look like, that next step for his gospel to grab a hold of us right where we are? What does that mean? A greater passage, a passion to read scriptures, a greater placing of some of those desires on the altar, just fresh faith to respond to that little nudge of his spirit as he's calling you just to step out in some way. Maybe starting a Bible study and inviting your neighbors along. Maybe reaching out and just sharing the good news with someone you've been praying for, whatever it might be. So Holy Spirit, just as we bring our time this morning to a close, I pray that you'd really move in our hearts. Pray that you would do what only you can do. That you would refine and refire that you would show us, each and every one of us here, what that next step is. How we can allow the good and glorious, gracious news of the gospel 
to grab a fresh hold on our hearts. And Lord, I pray that there would be just that renewed passion for each one of us to see and to savor and to spread this glorious and great news. Capture our hearts afresh and may we be compelled by that same passion that same fire burning in our hearts. Praise you, God. I pray these things in Jesus' name.